right, Genesis chapter 2 this morning. Genesis chapter 2, hopefully you're, you're reading along in preparation for, for each week as we, as we make our way through. Uh, we are doing a, a chapter at a time, uh, and uh, this is a tough one. <laughs> this, is a, this is a tough one, there'll be many more of those. Um, as, as you look through Genesis chapter 2, and as you, you start to, to kind of break out those, those verses and begin to, to look at what is going on, uh, when we made the introduction, we, we talked about that we are looking primarily at foundations and, and faithfulness, and, and really it's those first, first several chapters that are more the, the foundational pieces, right? And you're thinking about the creation, you're thinking about the flood, you're thinking about the different things that are instituted, and this is, uh, this is certainly um, very characteristic of that section. Right? There are a lot of foundations uh, that are being laid in this chapter. And there are more foundations uh, than we have time to, to cover here this morning. Although I could make you stay a very long time and we could cover them all. I, I won't do that here this morning, okay? Uh, but, but here this morning, we're going uh, to take a look at, at a couple of these. Um, if, if you were to, to, to think about what this entire chapter uh, looks like as a whole, uh, in my mind, it really comes down to God's provision and his, his providence. Uh, every, every, every breakdown that I could, that I could think of uh, as I went through this chapter, it's just, it's just provision after provision after provision after provision uh, that is being laid out there by, by God. And it is, it is helpful for us to think through that. It is helpful for us to see that in our lives. Uh, and so hopefully, if you haven't read it this week, if you haven't been paying attention to that, uh, go, go back and read that this morning. And, uh, and, and pay attention to that this morning. But uh, for this morning, uh, I want to look at, at two, uh, two of these provisions uh, that are being made for. And, and these, these two foundations uh, that we're, we're looking at this morning are, are foundations for the future. Okay? They're, they're foundations for the future. Uh, they are here. Uh, they are important here. Uh, they will be important in Israel's life. They, they, they are important for us today. Uh, but they are pointing towards something that is, that is, that is yet to come, and, and specifically yet to come in terms of when Genesis was written. So uh, we'll, we'll be looking at those this morning. Before we do that, let's, uh, let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump in. Father, again, we, we thank you for what, uh, what you have laid out for us here in Scripture, for, for the records that have been left for us, Father, for the way that they have been laid out. Uh, and, and Father, for our ability to, to be able to, to read and, and to understand and to enjoy. Father, I thank you that we have a revelation on top of this. Uh, Father, the, these, these passages are helpful. These passages are good, and they are good by themselves. Uh, but Father, as we have seen revelation unfold, as we have seen future prophecies being laid out, as we have seen law in many ways laid out on top of these Father, these, these foundations uh, become richer. Uh, these foundations become more meaningful. Uh, and they ultimately take their root and they take their form in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray uh, that you give us grace to, to appreciate them uh, for that this morning. That you give us uh, grace to, to see and to understand how these passages are, are, are weaving their way from here all the way through the Scripture. And the way that they are still impacting our lives today. Uh, give us grace to do that with the rest of this passage as well. Father, the passages that we cannot cover. Uh, Father, help us uh, to love you. Help us to worship you uh, because you are an amazing, God. Uh, you, you, are, uh, you are rich uh, in your abundance and in your providence to us. Uh, and Father, we are, we are ever, ever thankful for that. So give us grace for this this morning. Uh, give me clarity of words and of thought. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 
All right, so it's Genesis chapter 2. Let me read the first three verses here this morning, and this will be, uh, this will be where we will start. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens were completed in all their host. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified it, because in it he had rested from all his work, which God had created and made. I have a, I have a bone to pick with whoever split out these chapters. Uh, I really wish this was in chapter one. I have to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, and since those chapters are not inspired, I can go pick a bone with someone. But, uh, but if, you, if this was up to me, I would throw these verses back in chapter one. They really make a lot more sense, don't they? Uh, right in chapter one, as we looked at last week, we're talking about creation, right? And we, and we saw in chapter one, there were six days of creation, uh, right? Each one success, uh, successively uh, building on the other, uh, new elements are introduced each day, uh, right? They're, they're fitting uh, in, in the, way that they, uh, the way that they work together. They're clear in, in the way that they are, are working together. And on the sixth day, we kind of reach that, that culmination. And we, we looked at this some, right? The sixth day, uh, we have uh, we have. Uh, Creatures uh, that are created on this earth, creatures that can, that can eat uh, from, from the plants that had been created earlier, uh, creatures that have, have water to drink, right? They're, not, they're not, just, you know, not just dumping them in a gigantic world full of water, right? There's ground that they could, they could be on. Uh, there, there's day, there, there is night. Everything that you would need, everything that man would need is present there. And, and creatures are created, and finally man is created on, on the sixth day as well. Uh, chapter 2, uh, m- once you get past these first three verses, chapter 2 serves as kind of a, um, uh, almost a microscope, a- a- as it were, right? If, if you're looking at ch- uh, chapter 1, you're thinking in terms, okay, these are the days, and you see man gets created, and you're like, cool, man gets created, that's wonderful. Uh, chapter 2 comes along, kind of magnifies a little bit, and says, well, let me, let me, let's think a little bit about this, you know, what really did happen on day 6? What really, what really did take place on that day? We know that, that God creates man, male and female, right? That was the intention, that was the plan. What does that look like? How does that, how does that actually play out? Chapter 2 kind of magnifies in a little bit there and says, well, let's, let's think about that day a little bit here, right? But verses 1 through 3 are, 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 are separate. It is, it is the seventh day that occurs, right? God has finished his work on, on day 6. Man is created. Everything else is in place. Uh, we saw there in verse 31 that it was very good. Uh, right, that 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 final that final assessment was made. Everything that we have done is good. Okay, and then we get to to, to chapter two, verse one. Everything is completed. Right, that's the, that's the point of verse one. Just letting you know. By the way, uh, we are done. Everything is completed. All the plans that we had laid out for each of those days done. Check, 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 check. Right, where everything is everything is present. And then verse 2, by the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested. It's almost interesting, uh, that, and it's telling that he bothers to say, by the way, this is the seventh day, we didn't do anything, <laughs> right? That doesn't really seem to deserve any notice, does it? Right, because what are we worried about? We're worried about verse 1 here, right? Is everything done? Yep, everything's done, right? And yet God bothers to say that, by the way, we have a seventh day, and we didn't do anything else that day, right? We were, uh, we were done. Uh, we were resting. We're, we're complete here, right? Uh, it's almost unnecessary, right? But because he bothers to throw it in there, that tells you that there's some significance to it, doesn't it? 
right? Normally, I don't go around telling you all the days that I didn't do something, right? Normally, I tell you the things that I did do and when I did do them, right? So to, to take the time to say, by the way, there's a seventh day that is coming. I'm not, I did not do anything in this day. There is a, there is a reason. There is a significance. And we see that in verse 3. God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God created and made. So this, this seventh day in, in which we are no longer doing everything, because everything was already completed, at days one through six, right? This seventh day is, is, is blessed, and it is, it is sanctified. It is set apart, right? It is, it, it is made to be a little bit different from the other six days. Are the other six days significant? Well, absolutely, right? We couldn't get to verse one of chapter two if we weren't at that point. But there is something about the seventh day where we, we're going we're gonna to take this one off, and we're going to move it off to the side. Right? We're going we're gonna to separate it off a little bit. There is, there is something that is significant here. There is something that is, that is special about this day, a day in which God did nothing. Right? This, is, this is what is being laid out for us here. And, and so this becomes, this becomes foundational. And we find Scripture picking up on this, and we find Scripture building on this as we go through. So let's, let's think about how this, how this ends up building on. Uh, if you turn to Exodus 31... Exodus chapter 31. When we see there in, in Genesis chapter 2 that the seventh day is, is sanctified, that it is, it is set apart, we see no command attached to it. Right? There, is no, there is no distinct command about what you're supposed to do or not supposed to do on the seventh day. There's no, there's no, there's no indication that that's what is going on there. It simply says that it's set apart. It is, it is blessed, right? It is, there is something significant about it, but there's no command. There's nothing that you have to, to do particularly about that. However, when you get to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8, when God is giving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, suddenly what shows up? Suddenly we got a Sabbath day. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. For Israel, it becomes a command, one of those, one of those core Ten Commandments that is, that is engraved on tablets and, and brought down to the children of Israel. It becomes distinct, right? It already is sanctified. It already is blessed, thanks to Genesis chapter 2. We know that. But now we begin to build on this sanctification. We begin to build on this blessing and say, well, there's a little more to it than what we thought before, right? Genesis 31, then, we get, we get more of this. Exodus chapter 20, we just know you have to keep the Sabbath. Exodus 31, we build deeply on it. So Exodus 31, look if you, look if you would at verse 12 here. <clears throat> we have been laying out uh, what the, the tabernacle should look like. We have been laying out who is going to work on the tabernacle, the, uh, the craftsmen that are involved with it. And at the end of, of 31... The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days my work will be done. Work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath, to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, 
And on the seventh day, he ceased from labor and was refreshed. So there is, a, we, are, we are building on top of this Sabbath day, and we are putting a lot on the Sabbath day at this point here, right? Uh, did you notice there, uh, when we looked in verse 14, and then we looked again down at verse 15, we, uh, we are not only uh, stipulating that this is going to be observed, but, but we are putting fatal consequences on a lack of observation, right? It, it goes beyond simply, this is a day that is set apart. This is a day that is special. It goes to a day that this is so special. This is so sacred. This is such an important day that if you fail to observe this the way that I've commanded you, you're out. You're gone. We're, we're, we're casting you out. We're not just casting you out. We're putting you to death, right? This day takes on immense significance for the children of Israel. We see that it serves two, two specific purposes as we look at it. Uh, we see that it serves as a sign. It serves as a sign. Um, Verse 13, but as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, you shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. There's almost a bit of irony, isn't there? Right? The, the day on which uh, that God had sanctified, that he had set it apart, he now looks at the children of Israel and said, this is a sign to you, a sign that I am the one who has sanctified you. I have sanctified the seventh day, and now I have sanctified you. you. You have been set apart. You have been blessed. You are being dealt with differently. This is a sign to you, right? This is, a, uh, this, this is a sign that this is what is taking place here. The emphasis, I believe, is on that I am the Lord who sanctifies you, right? How is it that Israel has attained this position? Is it because they've been exceptionally well-behaved? Is it because they will continue to be well-behaved? Uh, look, look at chapter 32, if you think that's what the case is going to be. We're going to have a golden calf here in a chapter, right? This is, this is not God looking at Israel saying, well, you guys have done a really great job. I want you to celebrate yourselves and give yourselves a round of applause. Sit down and have a special day just to celebrate this. No, it is I, the Lord, who sanctified you, right? He has set you apart. He has done the work. He has, 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 has done this for you. This is a sign, right? And this is so important of, of a sign for you that you fail to keep this sign, you're going to die. All right, this is, this is some heavy stuff, is it not? So it is a sign to the children of Israel that God is the one who sanctifies them, right? He is the one who has done the work. Everything that they are enjoying, it comes from him. The second thing that you see there. Uh, is, is in verse 17, is a sign again. It is a sign forever between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. God pulls back from Genesis chapter 2 and brings that forward again and says, you remember why this day was, is special, right? You remember what makes this day different. What, what makes this day unique? It's the day that I ceased from my labor. Right? This, I think, becomes then a, a, a tool as well. It is, it is a sign for the children of Israel uh, to look and say, it is God who sanctifies us, right? To, to recognize that, to see that, to think about that, to reflect on that. But remember also, this, this, is a, uh, this serves as a, as a teaching tool. Remember that, that Israel is instructed to teach their children 
as many times as they have opportunity, right? They're walking down the road. They're teaching their children. They're sitting down in their house. They're teaching their children. They're running out to the field. They're teaching their children. Everything that, every day, every, every opportunity, every minute is to be seen as an opportunity to teach their children. This is what God is, has done for us. This is who he is. Uh, this, is uh, this is why we are where we are. This is who we are. This is, this is where all of this has come from here. The Sabbath day then becomes a tool. It becomes a reminder to point to every Sabbath day as you are sitting there and you are resting and you are not doing any work at all because otherwise you're going to get killed, right? You're not doing anything at all. It becomes a moment to stop and reflect on the fact that it is God who has created us. It is God who has created everything that is around us. It is God who, is, who has put us in, in the blessed situation that we are to, to have the law, to have the covenants, to have a tabernacle, to have a, a later a temple. It is, it is God who has done all these things. It becomes, it becomes an opportunity to teach. It becomes an opportunity to reflect, right? And they are to be, they are to be reminded of this forever. It is, a, it is a covenant uh, for them, uh, as God stipulates here at the end of verse 16. It is a perpetual covenant, right? You are to do this. You are to do this and 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 to do this. And they are to be instructed by this. And it goes back to Genesis chapter 2. Right? And again, this is why I think Moses would have written Genesis chapter would have written Genesis sometime during that uh, during that wilderness wandering because uh, this take this makes Exodus thirty one make a whole lot more sense, doesn't it? Right to simply remember that oh by the way God created the heaven and the earth in, in six days. Well, you have Genesis chapter two, you have Genesis chapter one to to back that up to to give you the the meat for that. And so surely you would spend some time saying, hey, do you remember Genesis chapter one? Because that's why we're resting today. Right? It's a, it becomes a tool. It, it becomes significant to the life of the children of Israel, and they are bound by this now. It is a sign to them. It is a covenant to them. Uh, they, they, they must keep this. This is part of who they are. This is, this, this is part of day-to-day life. And even still, it's amazing because it then governs the way that every, day, every, every week looks, doesn't it? Every week has seven days, and why does it have seven days? Because God said we're going to have seven days. Because I had six days of work and then I rested. Even today, does it does it not? Do you not marvel a little bit at the fact that you have a seven day week? Where does that come from? There have been attempts in history to say, "No, we want ten, <laughs> right?" And every time it fails, it's as if this order that has been impressed by God upon the universe simply cannot cannot be changed. Right? It's as if there, you cannot break away from it, even if it seems arbitrary, right? because of the creative work in which God has done. And it remains that way for the children of Israel as well. Right? There, is a, there is a significance. There is an order that is imposed on their life, and it comes because of God's work in Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Work for six days, rest on the seventh. Right? And this becomes a sign and a covenant. This takes on then further significance as we move into the New Testament. All right, turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. In, in the book of Hebrews, the, the author of Hebrews, whoever, whoever that may be, begins to find further significance in this passage. Right? We, so we have gone from simply uh, from an account, 
in Genesis chapter 2 that says, by the way, this day is special, this day is sanctified, this day is blessed. We have moved to a spot where this is now much more formal. Right, we we have a day in which I'm now not allowed to do any work, right, and I'm, and it's punishable even by by death. Uh, there is there's a there's a sign that is incorporated. There are two signs that are incorporated, and there is a, there is a covenant now that is attached to this day, right. There, so we have we have built in Hebrews chapter four. We build again as the author of Hebrews finds yet more significance from this from this passage. If you look in verse one of Hebrews four. The author writes this, Therefore, let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you may seem to come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they had also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter the rest, just as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as he had been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who entered his rest has also himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fail through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are open and laid bare to him for whom, um, for with whom we have to do. In Hebrews chapter 4, the, the author is, is pulling again on Genesis chapter 2 and he's building. Okay? We're, we're talking about a, a rest then, another rest. And the author is pulling very cleverly two different passages together. together. He's pulling from Psalm 95.11 for the bulk of it there. The, the, the quote that is given for us there in verse 3 is, I swore in my wrath, they shall enter my rest. That comes from Psalm 95.11. And, and the psalmist there in Psalm 95.11 is looking back again to the children of Israel, and he's looking at them as they were wandering in a while in the wilderness, and as they were getting ready to enter into the, in, into the, into the promised land, to, to inherit the promises, to, to get the rest as we may think of there, they fail to get it. And God says, you will not enter my rest. And the reason was, it was disobedience, right? They were given the command to go in, and they said, oh, we, we, we couldn't possibly succeed. We couldn't possibly win. There's giants in the land. This is, this is impossible, right? It is disobedience, and they turn around and they go back. It is disobedience, but it is disobedience that is built upon a lack of faith. It is disobedience that is built on unbelief, right? And this is what, this is what the author is, is tying us to here in Hebrews 11, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, rather. Right? He is looking at that passage in Psalm, as the psalmist is looking back at another passage, and he's saying, they cannot enter my rest. Well, what is, what is my rest? What is this rest, right? We know that they didn't go in, right? We know that they couldn't make the promise. And we know it's disobedience. We know it's unbelief. But now we're, the psalmist is saying, well, that was the rest. 
And not only was it, not only was it rest, but it was God's rest. And the author of Hebrews in, in chapter 4 says, well, what is that rest? And he looks back at Genesis chapter 2, and he says, what was that rest? It was day 7, when God ceases from his work. The author is really almost looking at it as if God has never worked today from Genesis 7 or from Genesis 2 on, right? It's, it's as if God has just been done, right? He did all of his work in, in chapter 1 and we're done, right? Now, we know that he's upholding the universe by his hand, so there's, there's more to it than that. Don't, don't think that God is, is not, this is not deism where God has walked away and the earth's just spinning in orbit, right? He is actively maintaining it. But from the perspective of Genesis, from the perspective that is, that is given to us here, God is simply done in, in chapter 2. He's done. He, he's, we've done. We've accomplished everything that we meant to do. We've accomplished the work, and now I rest And so the author of Hebrews is saying, well, this rests in Psalm 95. We're going to tie that back to Genesis chapter 2. And how do you enter that rest? Well, you enter in it by faith. That's how you enter into it. That's how the children of Israel did not enter into it once before. They could not get it by faith. And then in in verse 9, he brings it out even further, right? And this is where Exodus 31 comes in. Hebrews 4, verse 9, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The rest referenced by the psalmist in Psalm 95. The rest not entered in. Not that the children of Israel did not enter in because of unbelief. This Sabbath rest, in verse 10, for the one who has entered his rest, God's rest, has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his This is what I think Exodus 31 was pointing to when he said, I want this to be a sign for you that I am the one who has sanctified you. It was not Israel's works that got them sanctified. It was God who sanctified them. Right? And and the Sabbath day was meant to point towards that fact. It was a sign of that fact. It was a it was a, it was a blaring um, it was a blaring message of that fact. It's not you. It's not what you've been doing. It's what I have done. And here in verse 10, we get the final, the ultimate fulfillment of what that Sabbath rest really looks like. God rested from his works on day seven. And when we enter into his rest, it is because we likewise have ceased to work as well. It is not my work that gets me rest. It is not my work that allows me to inherit the promises of God. It is him. He is the one who has done the work. He is the one who has done the sanctification. It is his, his works that have accomplished this for us. This Sabbath rest that we see that takes place in Genesis chapter 2 is in reality laying a foundation for the work that Christ would do and the way in which it is applied to his people. We rest. And it's because we have ceased from our works. And by faith we have pursued this rest. And it is by faith that we enter this rest. It is by faith that we have achieved this rest. Right? Not by my works. Not because I'm sweated after it. Not because I've strived for it. Not because I've been able to sanctify myself in some capacity. But because the Son has done that work for me. The Son has caused me to enter His rest by faith. Right? And Genesis chapter 2 is setting it all up. By simply saying, on the seventh day, God didn't do anything, right? And he takes you and he leads you all throughout scripture and says, it is the son, right? It is the son who has spoken to us, rest in him, 
trust in him, believe in him, and use the example of Israel in the meantime, a people who could not seem to stop working, right? A people who confused uh, the law as being the means of that salvation, as Paul will lay out more clearly, right? It was not their work. The Sabbath day was meant to point that out. That was what the whole Sabbath day was meant for, uh, right? The Sabbath day was meant to say, it's not you who does it, it's me. I'm the one who sanctified you. And the children of Israel did what? Instead, they built all these things on top of the law. They built all these things on top of the Sabbath, and they missed it, just as their forefathers did, right? It's in Christ. The rest is in Him. The rest is through Him. The rest is through faith. We enter into the rest that God ordained there in Genesis chapter 2, right? And we cease from our works just as He has ceased from Him, right? It's a foundation, Right? Genesis chapter 2 is laying foundations for the future. Moses could not have known that. Even, even when he's looking at probably, probably the Sabbath day in Exodus 31, I don't know that Moses would have understood that. But the author of Hebrews and we who have come behind afterwards, we know and we understand what that means. And we enter into his rest, a rest which has begun many, many years before. So this is the first foundation laid for us. Go back with me to Genesis chapter 2 if you would. And again, there are, there, are many, there are many foundations laid for us here. But let's look at the, let's look at the second one here this morning. So the first is the, the sanctification of the seventh day. The sanctification of the seventh day. The second is the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden. This is a, this is a fun one, right? Verse 4 of Genesis chapter 2. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And in the day when God made the heaven and the earth. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had made and formed. And out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, and it flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Adelium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows around, it flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And, God com- and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. So, again, we are, we are taking this magnification on, on the sixth day and we are, we are zooming in on it, right? Uh, we see that God has created man uh, there in verse 7 uh, of this chapter. Uh, so we're, we're getting a little more, uh, all we know in, in Genesis uh, chapter 1 is that God creates man, male and female, uh, in, in chapter 1. Here we find that God is, is forming Adam from the dust of the earth. Uh, and the end of the chapter, we'll find that Eve is created out of a, a, a out of a rib for, from Adam and is brought to Adam and presented to him. And Adam realizes that's really what I was looking for. Uh, it's all for Adam's benefit, really, more than anything else. Uh, and this is this is what that day actually looks like. And as you think about what that day then looks like, you you have to wonder well, what is what does the earth actually look like at this point in time, 
right? What does that, uh, what, is, what do things actually look like, right? We know that, that God has taken those oceans and he's putting them in, in their places. We know that there's, uh, we know that he's, he's formed everything. We know that there's, there's, there's birds up in the sky and there's fish down in the sea and there's little creeping things running on all over the place. And we, we know that there's plants that are on the earth and he's created all these things. We know the sun, moon, the stars, and everything is present. But what, are, what do things really look like, right? And you get the, the, the picture of this in verse five. No shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. The idea probably is not that there is no greenery present anywhere. That's probably not the idea. Uh, but the idea of, of shrubs and um, the, um, where's the other word that I'm looking for there? The field, or the plants of the field, uh, those signify things that need to be cultivated. Right? We're talking about like hedges. Right? We're, we're talking about you know, uh, useful things. Plants of the field are, are really more speaking of, of crops, than something that you would eat. So, so in other words, there is probably greenery that is present on the face of the earth. Uh, but if you were to just take off at this point in time and just start walking across the face of the earth, you're not going to be running into fields of wheat. It's not cultivated. It's not, it's, not, it's not been, those things haven't been planted. It takes man to do that kind of work, right? This is the very purpose that man gets put into verse 15. You have to cultivate it. You have to keep it. This is, this is part of man's responsibility. And as God points out at the end of, of verse 5, there was no man to cultivate the ground, right? So you have a very real problem as we look in verse 5 here is that you have an earth that has plants. You have an earth that has some greenery there, but it doesn't really have something for you to just walk around and go eat. Right? If God were to simply drop man at this point in time and just drop him on the ground and say, hey, go fend for yourself, man would have a very difficult time. There's nothing ready for him there. Right? There's nothing for him to just to go grab and start and eat. And so how does God resolve this issue? Again, the providence of God, the provision of God. How does God provide for Adam? Well, in verse 8, he plants a garden. He plants a garden. Uh, this garden is in Eden. Okay? The garden's name is not Eden. The garden is inside of Eden. Eden is a region. Okay? We call it the Garden of Eden because it's the only garden that we know of in Eden at this point in time. So it becomes the Garden of Eden. But that, that's what is going on here. There is a garden that is created in this land to, for God to take Adam and Eve and to put them in the middle of and for their needs to be met. Right? And you can see the description. Right, Everything that they could possibly want is there. Right, verse 9, out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything that man could need, everything that man could want has been provided for him in this garden. Right? Everything, everything has been prepared for. Everything has been laid. Uh, this, this, this garden is almost a, a building, as it were. Uh, as, as it, it seems like it would all probably be hedged in, uh, perhaps, because it, it's a garden. You have all of these trees that are present, so things that are simply nice to look at. Uh, those are present. Uh, things that are good to eat, uh, those things are present. If you need something, you have it. You, you, have, been, you have been prepared for. Things have been, uh, things have been done. Uh, God is even making sure that you have enough water uh, to, to, to make sure that this continues to grow, right? The description that is present there from verses 10 to verse 14, these four rivers that are running through Eden, they are all somehow kind of like circumferencing this garden or running through this garden in some capacity so that this water, can, that this garden continues to have enough water. Uh, we see even that there's a, there's, a, there's a bit of an issue, which is hard to explain there in verse 5, right? There is no, there is no rain, 
We have, we have no rain. We don't get rain till after the, uh, after the flood, uh, or until the flood. And so there's a mist that simply, simply comes up, and God is, God is making sure that everything is, has enough, that it, enough water that it needs to live. So he, he puts man in this most optimal place possible, right, and gives man uh, the, the responsibility to, to cultivate it, uh, to care from it. And he tells them, in, in there in verse uh, 16, any tree of the garden you can eat freely, except for one. Right? Any tree of the garden, though, you can eat and you can eat of it freely. Everything is available to them here. Now, our eyes, our, our minds tend to, to run very quickly to the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't we? Right? And we're not going to talk about that because Mark's going to talk about that next week. But there's another tree that is present that's worthy of notion, isn't it? Worthy of mention. And that's the tree of life. This tree of life sits there. God, God specifically calls it out, right? There are, there are two trees that are present. We have a tree of life. Uh, we have a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Both of these trees are present. And even that tree of life really highlights the fact that everything that God has done to this point is to sustain life. Everything that he has done here is to sustain life. Adam and Eve have everything that they need. If he was to drop them anywhere else, they don't have that. If they were to go further east, they go to the land of Nod, right, where Cain will eventually be cast out. Hopefully none of you are visiting right now. You don't seem to be, right? None of you are visiting the land of Nod. But if you were to go to the land of Nod, that is a curse, that is a, that is a, uh, that is a problem, because it's not the Garden of Eden. It's not being cultivated. It, it doesn't have what Adam and Eve have here. What they need, what, what everything that God has provided for them, everything that is good for them, everything that, that they need for life is present right here. And the tree of life even enhances that fact, right? A tree which probably gives healing, a tree which provides life in some capacity, right? It is present here at this point in time, and they can eat from it anytime they want. Anytime they want, it's present, right? God has given them everything they need. He has made provision for them. And even this lays foundations for the future. Turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. The tree of life will show up several times in Scripture. And we don't have time to, to develop it, but the Garden of Eden is, is probably a, a type in and of itself, a shadow of things that are to come. And that's what we're looking at really here in Revelation 22. Ironically, the tree of life shows up more in Ezekiel than anywhere else. Uh, but I, we're in Genesis. I'm not allowed to go out and talk about Ezekiel today. Revelation 22, though, here this morning, this tree of life shows up again. Revelation chapter 22, in verses 1 through 5, we get a, a very a, a, a picture that is presented for us that seems eerily uh, familiar, doesn't it? Seems very, very similar to what we would have thought and we might have seen in Genesis chapter 2. Revelation chapter 22, we're looking at a new heaven and a new earth. Right? This is not the earth as you and I know it. Now, this is a new heaven. This is a new earth. This was laid out for us in Revelation 21.1, right? And John is being showed around this place. He's being, he's being guided, and they're saying, look at this over here, and look at this over here. And in Revelation 22, verse 1, this is another picture that is presented that he is looking at. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. 
and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face and his name, and it will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. They will have no need of the light of the lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The picture that emerges there in the first few verses is, is of a throne that is, that is present there. And from this throne, a, a river proceeds, a river of life as it is described. It seems to run, it's described as, as running in the middle of the, of the road, of, of the street. And so you almost get this idea that is forming of kind of a boulevard that is being presented, that is, that is building alongside either, either part of this, this river. So you have the river that is running through, you have a street that is running alongside on either, either bank. And then next to that, uh, we see there, our old friend there in verse 2, the tree of life. It is present. It's, this is, it's not just a boulevard, but it's a, it's, it's a wooded boulevard. There are trees along this, this boulevard there. And in this particular instance, we are talking about the tree of life. Right? We haven't seen it. Right? Man has been denied uh, the tree of life ever since the, ever since the Garden of Eden and the, and the fallout that ensues from Adam and Eve's sin. But here, in this new heaven and the new earth, what shows up again? It's the tree of life. And in whose presence is it? It's the Lamb. It's the Father, right? He is the one that's presenting it to us. And in this new heaven, in this new earth, it's as if we get a return back to the Garden of Eden, but a better one. Because who's there? Christ is there. The Father are there. In fact, many of the features that we are used to, like needing day, needing night, we have no night anymore. We don't even need the sun anymore because the light of the Lamb and of the Father is so great that we simply live by its light here at this point in time, right? This is a, this is a beautiful picture that is emerging. It is, it is a fantastic picture that is emerging, a carefully manicured place, right, where everything that you would need is present. The Lamb is present. The Father is present. The tree of life is present. Uh, again, we even see rivers that are pre- present again. It's as if God really enjoys rivers and enjoys having those kinds of things present. He wants this to be beautiful. It becomes, uh, it becomes even described, if you turn back to Revelation 2 and verse 7, it even gets the, the very familiar description of a paradise. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7, as, the, uh, as, John, as Jesus is, is writing to the, to the churches here in Ephesus, he says in 2 and verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The paradise of God. God goes so far not only to create a paradise the first time when he creates the heaven and the earth and he takes man and woman and he sticks them there and says this is everything that you need. But to his people he says again, you who hear my word, who keep my word, I'm going to take you and I'm going to put you in the paradise of God and you will again eat from the tree of life. Right? It points to the one who has not only created the earth the first time, as we talked last week, that is Jesus Christ, but it points to him doing it again, saying again, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. This thing that we are looking at right now, all of this will burn up. All of this will pass away. It will get rolled up one day. But there is a new heaven and a new earth. And when he does that, he says, I'm going to basically, as it were, recreate. But it's going to be better. I will be present. 
The Father will be present. There's no, need, there's no night anymore. The light that is coming is, is present from us, which is reminiscent of what we saw in creation as light is present before the sun and the moon even exist there, right? It is going back to this creation account and is laying the foundation for what your and I future looks like. Should we find ourselves in verse 7 to the one who overcomes, right? To the ones who are keeping the word of God, to the ones who are believing in the word of God and who persist and who obey, who enter into the rest, who enter into the rest that has been already described for us in chapter 2. This is the benefits that await us. This is the paradise that awaits us. This is the life, the future that awaits us. It's laid out for us already in Genesis chapter 2, but we get it better in Revelation chapter 22 in a new heaven and a new earth, right? If we're thinking, if we're thinking about the provision of God in Genesis chapter 2, we're very much thinking about the provision of God in Revelation 22, right? His character, his nature is always consistent. He has provided for man to begin with, and he will provide for you and I uh, as, as, we, as we persist and as we enter into a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, that, that city whose builder and maker is God, this, this is when all this comes to pass, right? And we are reminded of the provision of God for his people. He sanctifies his people. He prepares for his people. He provides for his people in, in, in Christ, in a new heaven and a new earth, in the earth that we exist on on this very present moment. Right? He has provided all of this for us because he is a God who provides. And he's laid out that future for us already. And he started it in Genesis chapter 2. Right? We are looking forward to this because, of, because we believe in him. Right? Because we know him to be that kind of a God who provides abundantly for his people and acts on behalf of his people. So let's reflect on that, shall we? Right? Reflect on that day by day. Let us enter into that rest. Let us rest in him knowing what is coming is good. Knowing what is coming is certain. Knowing what is coming is only a better iteration of the things that you can see right here and right now. Right? It, it is something for us to anchor ourselves on as we go through the present turmoils and the present crisis. The one who overcomes right, because of what is coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this. Uh, we, we thank you for words uh, of encouragement. Father, we thank you for being able to tie them back to things that we can see and, and think about right now. Uh, Father, there is an aspect in which we can, we can visualize what's coming. Uh, because we can see uh, what is present on this earth, even though it is, even though it is marred, uh, even though it is sin-tainted, uh, even though we are, uh, we are experiencing death and we are experiencing suffering and all, of the, all the, the, the curses that have come from, uh, from, from Adam and Eve's sin. Father, we can visualize what is coming, and we are excited to know that it's better. We are excited to know that it is you who has provided that for us. We are excited to know that it is not our work that is, that is going to achieve this for us and that, that would somehow be in jeopardy because I, I can't possibly keep it up because I am sinful, as we talked about in, in Proverbs 2 this morning. Uh, Father, it is, it is your work. It is your Son who has accomplished this. It is your Son who created the first time. It is your Son who recreates the second time. And, and Father, for that, we are grateful. Father, for that, in that we find comfort, in that we find hope. And Father, that should cause us to overcome, Father, as we, as we cling to the promises which you have given to us. So help us, Father, to live lives of faith, lives which are looking toward the future, lives which are looking to what your Son has done, lives which are, which are centered on your word 
and are living that out and acting that out in all of our, in all of our days and all of our interactions. Father, we thank you again for who you are. We thank you for your provision on our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.